Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Now you'd think that one of the guaranteed lessons students learned at university is that nothing in this world is free. After all, the buildings in which they attend lectures and the lecturers themselves are not provided by charities. Indeed, the students are attending university in order to, you'd assume, make themselves eligible for a higher wage when they eventually join the workforce. So it was disturbing that President Joe Biden has overnight caved into demands which have been mounting for years to write off up to $10,000 from each individual loan taken out by students in the US to pay for their fees, their tuition fees. The total outstanding student debt in the US is an eye-watering $1.6 trillion. These were loans willingly taken out in order to enrol in a pointless woke arts degree that qualified the students for little more than a job at McDonald's. For many of them, paying off the debt is a distant dream. The universities themselves are complicit in this. They turn themselves into meaningless degree factories knowing that the debts incurred by students were not owed to them but to the government. It's the same situation here in Australia, where the Higher Education Loan Program, which currently totals about $68 billion, is underwritten by the federal government. Like in the US, there's no limit to the number of useless graduates these universities produce. As far as they're concerned, the more the merrier. Offering relief from this debt trap is a guaranteed vote winner among millennials and Gen Z. It's already part of the Greens manifesto, which is also proof of how batty it is as an idea. As American commentator Matt Walsh said on Twitter today, quote, if you think working class people should be made to foot the bill for grad students who don't want to pay their debts, please never talk about justice fairness or equity ever again, unquote. Well, as if that's going to stop them. We have a cracking show for you tonight. We've got the great West Australian law academic Rocco Loyacono talking about the Crime Commission in Western Australia, Nick Cater on China and Qantas and a whole lot of other things. We'll be looking at the Job Summit, politically correct dance floor monitors in Workwatch and much more. Now let's get into it. Well, big things are happening in our economy. They are happening with a velocity without precedent and they are changing everything. How do I know this? Former Queensland Premier Anna Bly told me, or at least that's what she wrote in the Financial Review yesterday. Bly, who is now the Chief Executive of the Australian Bankers Association, was writing about next week's Jobs Summit in Canberra, which she will be attending. 
She went on, quote, we are hurtling at pace towards a digital and decarbonized economy. These two big forces present us with opportunities to be seized and pitfalls to be avoided. As we approach the Jobs and Skills Summit, we need to see the event as the launch, not the landing, of some much needed deep thinking about the economy we want a decade from now and beyond." Unquote. Does this assumption of authority over the economy sound vaguely Soviet to you? Take away the tacit appeal for the reader's approval and you could be reading the introduction to Stalin's five-year plan for Russian tractor manufacturing from 1930. Whenever self-appointed experts start spouting hyperbole about how dramatically they plan to improve your life, remember what the doyen of capitalism, Adam Smith, said, and I paraphrase, all it takes for a country to go from barbarism to opulence is a government that ensures peace, raises minimal taxes, and administers justice. All the rest, he said, is brought about by the natural order of things. By natural order, he meant the mutually beneficial commercial transactions between people who couldn't care less about Bly's digital and decarbonized economy. People like builders, farmers, salesmen, delivery drivers, hairdressers, gardeners, waitresses, and for all I know, circus trapeze artists. This is what drives a truly thriving economy, not the central planning of a self-appointed elite cabal. If you don't fall asleep first, you will see at the end of the Jobs Summit's official objectives on its website are the goals, quote, maximizing jobs and opportunities from renewable energy, tackling climate change, and ensuring women have equal opportunities and equal pay, unquote. The assumption that renewable energy offers anything but utter economic catastrophe, as we've already seen in Europe and elsewhere, seems not to have occurred to the organisers of the conference, nor the fact that women already have equal opportunities and pay. The true unstated objective of the summit, of course, is less benign. Albanese will use the two-day conference to soften the announcement of employment policies he knows he could never have taken to the electorate during the federal election campaign in May. We've already seen a taste of this with the carefully timed statement from ACTU Secretary Sally McManus on ABC T's 7.30 last night. McManus said, quote, if you're going to fix the bargaining system, there have to be multi-employer bargaining options, unquote. In other words, she wants to return to the bad old days of holding entire industries to ransom over her militant Marxist pay claims. There are reports that she already plans to advocate for these industry-wide rules to be included in the Industrial Relations Bill to be introduced to federal parliament later this year. So the summit hasn't even been held and she's already planning what she will do beyond it. If the Albanese government really cared about its carbon footprint, it would call the summit off and save the greenhouse gases that will be spewed into the atmosphere from the jets delivering the delegates to what looks like an almost certainly foregone conclusion. But that would deny the, the elites a chance to attend what the Sydney Morning Herald calls, quote, the hottest ticket in town, unquote. Well, if that's the hottest ticket in town, then, then perhaps 
I can interest Albo and his mates in front row seats to a special session of watching the grass grow in the courtyard of Parliament House. It would probably be more productive. The Herald says the 100 invitees consist of 30% from business, 30% from unions, 30% from community groups and academics, and 10% from state and local governments. The union presence is a dead giveaway. They make up 30% of the delegates, but represent only 14% of workers. This jobs summit might fill the delegates with feelings of self-importance, but to the rest of us in the real economy, it's nothing but a PR stunt to prepare us for the type of policies that were decided months ago. It won't work, Albo. Well, George Michael told us in 1984 that guilty feet have got no rhythm. And he was right. George was banishing himself from the dance floor because the memory of a guilty, promiscuous encounter meant he would, quote, never gonna dance again the way I danced with you, ooh, ooh, unquote. Oh, they were such simple times. It takes a lot less to be banished from the dance floor these days. All you need to do is stare inappropriately. The Daily Mail reports that Club 77 nightclub in Darlinghurst, Sydney is hiring, quote, staring police in high-vis jackets to ensure the, quote, safety of their patrons. Because as we all know, the last thing someone dancing in public wants is for people to be watching. Says the Daily Mail, quote, safety officers donning pink fluoro vests will roam the venue to deal with such complaints from anyone feeling uncomfortable or receiving unwanted attention, unquote. Well, perhaps Club 77's dancers wouldn't receive so much unwanted attention if the club's door policy was a little more discerning. The club's own, own website says it is a, quote, welcoming environment for all backgrounds, genders, and members of the LGBTQI community, an, an innovative party environ and safe space for freedom of expression. We operate a zero tolerance policy to racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, ageism, and any form of discrimination, unquote. So they don't discriminate against creepy old men in duffel coats or members of religious cults that prohibit displays of female skin, let alone in the shape of gyrating, scantily clad 20-something libertarians. There's your mistake right there, Club 77. As a door policy, inclusivity is about as useful as a DJ booth at a Tibetan Buddhist retreat. If ever there was a sign of the decline of Western civilization, this is it. Nightclubs used to reflect the harsh reality that not everyone could get into the most desirable places. You had to earn your way in by dressing right and knowing the right people. Such a door policy naturally kept trouble to a minimum, not only by keeping the riffraff out, but because anybody who'd earned their way in didn't want to get kicked out. These facts apply pretty much everywhere in life, except at Club 77, where what they've saved by not hiring a surly doorman, they now, now pay for in pink fluoro staring police wandering around the dance floor. And they call that progress. The iron reign of Mark McGowan over Western Australia is continuing. Since winning one of the most resounding victories in Australian political history in March last year, 
reducing the former opposition Liberal Party to two seats in the lower house, McGowan has ridden roughshod over the freedoms and principles that until now were fundamental to our democracy. Four months after the election, his government targeted organisations that were, quote, not in accordance with WA government policy, unquote, restricting them from being able to hire publicly owned venues. In other words, if you're a Christian organisation, you can't hold an event at a state theatre, which is indeed what happened to the Australian Christian lobby. This is Stalinism, pure and simple, in a formerly freedom-loving Australian state. Those restrictions were withdrawn after a public outcry, but McGowan's megalomania hasn't subsided. Despite making assurances during last year's campaign that electoral reform was not on the agenda, he embarked on major changes to the state's upper house as soon as he took control of it. Those changes will purportedly end rorting by minor parties, but might also reduce representation by conservative nationals in rural areas. This would, of course, benefit McGowan's Labor Party. And there is almost nobody in Parliament to oppose it. My next guest is West Australian legal academic and writer Rocco Loyacono, who recently wrote about another lesser known aspect of McGowan's authoritarian reign. Rocco, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Fred. Thank you for having me. Now, let's start with the organisation we're talking about here, the West Australian Corruption and Crime Commission. It's the oldest of its kind in Australia. What powers does it have to invest, investigate allegations of corruption? Look, the, the Triple C has, has very wide powers uh, to, to investigate allegations of corruption. And uh, in the past, it has engaged in video surveillance, covert video surveillance, uh, phone tapping and the like. Um, and the, these, because it has wide, very wide powers to, to investigate alleged corruption, uh, the framers of the Act, uh, when they wanted to uh, dis describe the appointment of a commissioner, um, made sure that it could not be appointed uh, by the willy-nilly of the government of the day. So it had to be, be appointed by a cross-parliamentary committee based on a recommendation of three persons. Well, let's, uh, Rock, I'll just, uh, Rock, I'll just stop you there. Let's get to the appointment of the commissioner in a second. But what I want to establish is, is how powerful this organisation is and, and what sort of track record it has. So, I mean, for example, does it act independently? Does it need to wait for someone to recommend someone be investigated or does it just act of its own volition? Look, that's the thing. It's, it's acted of, of its own volition in the past um, and um, that has led to uh, investigations and indeed trials of... Uh, numerous uh, people in Western Australia, um, namely uh, senior public servants like Nathan Hondros, former government ministers Julian Grill and the former Premier Brian Burke. The, in those investigations, spent tens of millions of dollars of taxpayers' money. It went through the courts and at the end of the day, it was found that there was no case to answer. And they are just three examples. Um, and this is the WA equivalent of the New South Wales ICAC and what happened to Margaret Keneen. Exactly the same thing. Very similar powers. Basically, the fundamental right of the presumption of innocence often gets thrown out the door and uh, in the, basically on the basis of allegations, which at the end of the day uh, are unable to be proven. What sort of track record does it have? Has it, has it got any big scalps at all? 
Look, I can't think of any huge scalps off the top of my head over the last over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. Presumably, they were going to get Julian Grill and Brian Burke, and in the end, uh, it was found that they had no case to answer. So when these when when there is no case to answer, and someone's name has been dragged through the mud with these, you know, secretive allegations and so on. And, and it's found to be untrue. Is there ever any process of exoneration? Well, the, uh, at, at this point in time, those people who have had their reputations trashed through the Triple C um, really have no recourse um, other than what uh, can they seek compensation from the state? But what is that? What is that going to achieve for them? There really is no recourse uh, to them for this. It's it's quite it's quite astonishing, really. Well, the amount of power we're talking about here is is also quite astonishing. I mean, the current commissioner, John McKechnie, was in, it was recently interviewed by the ABC about what advice he would give the federal government in setting up a similar commission in Canberra, and he said, "quote They must have the power to initiate inquiries themselves. They must not only rely on recommendations." They must have the ability to be retrospective and they must have the ability to fearlessly examine anything wherever it comes from. That word fearlessly actually fills me with fear, Rocco, because if this organisation is pursuing people fearlessly, it means there's no, there's no sort of um, comeback on them. I mean, is that how it operates in the... Yeah, there are no checks and balances. In that approach, there are simply no checks and balances. Um, and it, 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 and when you have an, a commissioner who, like McKechnie, and look, we're not casting aspersions because he, he's a respected legal figure in Western Australia, but when you have a figure like McKechnie who's saying, well, look, the triple C should be, the triple C is judge, jury and executioner, and any federal body should be judge, jury and executioner. I mean, as you say, that, that should send send shutters down the spine of anyone who respects the rule of law. Okay, well, let's get, and, let's and get to moment. your point now from your spectator piece. You say in your spectator piece that the McGowan government wanted to re reappoint former Supreme Court Judge John McKechnie as commissioner before the election, but it couldn't do so because it didn't have the numbers in the upper house. Now, what happened after the, the election when the government did have the numbers in the upper house? Well, what happened after the election was is that uh, the McGowan government passed an amendment to the Triple C Act to circumvent the appointment procedure. So rather than it being an, appoint uh, an appointment based on a cross-party committee who would look at three people nominated by the Chief Justice, the Chief Judge of Western Australia and a person appointed by the Governor, the McGowan government amended the Act to say, notwithstanding all of that, we appoint John McKechnie for the next five years as Commissioner. Well, again, so you now have a, yes. Go on. You now have a situation where it is apparent, possibly, that there could be a politicisation of an anti-corruption body. Precisely, and again, we need to emphasise: there's no suggestion here that McKechnie has acted in, in, inappropriately. What we are saying here is that the arrangement now creates a potential for conflicts of interest in future appointments. That's your point, isn't it, Rocco? That's right. And you, you have a situation now where, well, look, if the government of the day can appoint whomever it likes to be the anti-corruption commissioner, as I said, it sets up an uneasy relationship between the, the executive 
and a, a commissioner who may well need to investigate some of its members. And with the politicisation, it could be used potentially, I'm not saying it will, but there is the potential for it to be used against political opponents. And in Western Australia at the moment, we have a situation where uh, the Triple C has now been referred an investigation into Deputy Premier's Deputy Premier Roger Cook's office um, for the politicisation of the G2G passes during the COVID pandemic. Um, the viewers will recall that in Western Australia was the Iron Curtain was put up and no one could get in. No one could, well, you could go out, but you couldn't come back in. Um, and anyone couldn't come in, not even on compassionate grounds. So you had situations where dying relatives couldn't see each other and indeed, um, Kids who committed suicide, their parents weren't even allowed to come across to, to, to bury their kids. Now, all, all the while, uh, footballers could come, AFL footballers could come and go as they pleased. And as it, it potentially now we're finding out that donors to the Labor Party may have been given, the allegation is, this is an allegation at this stage, may have been given preferential treatment to have their G2G passes approved to enter into Western Australia to attend Labor Party fundraising events. Now, if this commissioner has been appointed by the government, will he continue to investigate that? Well, that's the that that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? Question. Yeah, yeah. Well, time yeah. will tell, Rocco. Um, but these are these are difficult issues to resolve. Um, that those exemptions to the G2G pass sound particularly uh, appalling if they're true. And I do hope that the Triple C gets to the bottom of it. But what we're seeing here, Rocco, is, I mean, this, this is actually happening around the world now. I mean, we're seeing it in Canberra. The new government is announcing an investigation after, uh, just investigation after investigation into its predecessors. And the in the United States, Joe Biden is, is targeting his predecessor using the FBI. Is this, Rocco, is this new law another example of politicians potentially enabling themselves to retain power, not democratically, but by just vilifying their opponents? Well, that's what politics, I mean, in my experience, has now become. There's no, once upon a time, politics was a battle of ideas. You'd have different ideas, you'd have a debate, and at the end of the day, the electorate would have a clear choice. At the end of now, what's happening is that it's become mudslinging, uh, particularly uh, particularly from the left, who spend no, who waste no time in implementing their agenda. They make no bounds about no bones about what they stand for, and they'll go after it, even if it includes trashing political opponents. And that's what's happening. And as I say here, with these amendments that we have here, that is the danger that these. These particular, this particular appointment has the potential to be used as an exercise in mudslinging and discredit, discrediting opponents. Well, I'd like to know how well that's cutting through from your, your perspective over there in Western Australia. I've been to WA a few times recently and, and I've got to say I was a little astonished by how much affection West Australians had for McGowan, to be honest. I kept hearing him during the, during the pandemic, I often heard people say, oh, well, he's keeping us safe. Which, uh, which surprised me. I always thought West, West Aussies were a bit more sceptical of politicians than that. But what's the opinion of McGowan on the streets these days, Rocco? Look, it's been a bit like turning around the Queen Mary, but there has been a definite change in, in sentiment. 
Um, the, if you listen to uh, Talkback Radio, um, there definitely is a sense of anger out there at the moment. The problem we have is that there's no opposition uh, to be able to capitalise on that anger. Um, and the, there's, uh, that's why at the last uh, state election they got wiped out because there was a me-tooism on, on the health advice. And uh, there's also, there was also the idea that the Liberals could out-left out the left and try and close down power stations by 2025, coal power stations by 2025, which was just idiocy. And they got punished for it at the state election. So that's the problem. There's no contest from that perspective. Um, but people are slowly starting, I think, to realise what the problem is. But again, as I say, when you've got no alternative to actually prosecute the case, it makes it, it, makes it very, very hard. The other problem is, is you have a very fawning media over here, and I'm not going to name names, um, but there are certain media proprietors here who, um, who uh, very much, uh, very much uh, push uh, the state government's line. Um, there is very little uh, opposition here uh, to questioning and holding the government to account. Rocco Loyakino, thanks for your time. Well, Australia's airline, Qantas, has announced its cumulative losses during the pandemic total almost $7 billion. But last time I flew with the airline, whatever cuts it was making to its budget didn't extend to the schmaltzy Still Call Australia theme song being played over the PA before and after flights, or the pointless welcome to country every time one of its planes landed on domestic soil. Any Australians who have experienced the dramatic decline in the airline's customer services lately, and there would be thousands of them, will greet this news about financial losses with a bit of a wry smile. It doesn't help that the airline seems to have also subscribed to every woke corporate cliche over the past few years. Well, to discuss this and more, let's bring in Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground, which you can see every Friday night at 8pm on ADH TV. Nick, welcome to the show. Hi Fred, good to be here. So Nick, what do you make of Qantas's massive corporate losses? I'm surprised it's only that actually. I mean, you look at it, I mean, they're these huge great lumps of tin that presumably cost, you know, huge amounts of money just to park somewhere on the tarmac and they've not been used for what best part of two years a lot of them so yeah I, I, you know it's really surprising when you think about it that the airline's even still in business or any airline is still in business of course they did receive some assistance from the government like everybody and they did you know lay off most of their staff i think on pretty poor terms from what i know from uh, People I know that work at Qantas, but uh, they're still going. But I think you mentioned um, I still call Australia home. I reckon they've missed an opportunity to make money there. I mean, you know when you get that box and you have to tick it, do you want to tick for carbon offset? I never tick that, but I tell you what, I tick it. I pay $20 to have an offset that meant you didn't have to listen to I still call Australia home. Maybe <laughs> they should do that. <laughs> do you reckon? Oh, mate, you're giving, you're giving them good ideas here. Uh, also, I think the losses that they've been accumulating are going to only get worse when they have to pay out compensation for all the luggage they've lost lately. Yeah. yeah so, but I'll tell you what, I mean, the, the, the stock market saw it coming. The, the share price has barely shifted. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, well, those guys know more than we do, of course, and um, they know it. They know us when, you know, when there's, there's a strategic loss where, where they might lay off some costs to get them off the books and then come back and 
produce a better result next year. All this stuff goes on as far above our pay grade, Fred, of course, but some people do that. But I, I yeah, I, I, I think that they are in trouble. I think all airlines are, but, but just there, there's something gone slightly wonky with the business model. I mean, we've all had that experience now of going through airports uh, and sure they're filling up, but they're not at the capacity quite yet that they were before the pandemic. And yet they're having trouble with basic things like checking people in, bags, you know, as you say, going astray, delays. I don't know if you felt this, but like, you know, flying from Sydney to Melbourne now for business, you know, it's, you can't risk going down first thing in the morning. You've got to go the night before because the chances there'll be a delay. I think their on-time running is about 50% at the moment. Uh, they've got to lift their game on that. I'm not quite sure what's gone wrong. But... Well, I, I read that the delays were caused by the fact that during the pandemic, it's not necessarily just the airlines, it was the airports as well, laid off all their staff. And then when people, when, when the airlines were opened back up again, the airports were surprised to realise that you actually needed staff to get planes off the ground. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And that, that, is, that is a problem. Do you remember when they first came back and there was some delays one day, Joyce blamed the passengers. He said they weren't match fit, which I thought was a bit rich. So look, they've got to lift their game and um, I'd love to see more competition back in the sector too. I mean, let's see multiple airlines compete against one another for good service and the best prices. That's the way that, that's the, way the customer always wins. Well, that's the way everything works, but uh, you don't, you're not going to hear that from the current uh, federal government, I, I, mm. I suspect. Now, listen, you've got Senator Jim Molan on your show tomorrow night. This is a big one to talk about China. Jim doesn't pull his punches about the need to prepare for war. What's his latest opinion about the state of the region? Well, he's just published his book, Danger on Our Doorstep, and I tell you, it is a most uncomfortable read, but you can't stop reading it. It's almost like a horror story, except that it's in real life as he winds through First of all, you know, China's progression into a, a, a highly technically efficient mili military state, which has obviously got ambitions on, on, on regional hegemony. You know, it wants to become the dominant force in the Pacific, if not the world. Uh, so that, that's an issue. Uh, and, and Jim is, oh, he's, he's a pessimist, but uh, look, I mean, we employ military commanders and Jim was, you know, in uh, one of our most senior uh, military commanders, as you know, he was in the army for 14 years, 40 years, 40. We employ them to work out the worst case scenario. So on that basis, that's what Jim has given us, the worst case scenario. Uh, and we have to lift our game. I mean, the most scary thing for me is not just, I mean, I knew that Australia was vastly underprepared, that, you know, if we, if we suppose we did decide to go to the defence of Taiwan, what do we take with us? You know, boomerangs? I don't know. You know, <laughs> we certainly don't have any subs that would get us there in, in under sort of three years. But um, so there, there are real issues with Australia. But of course, we've always felt comfort in the fact that we've got the, the ANZUS agreement in place and, and the US will, we hope, come to our defence. But, but Jim makes the case and he goes through this great detail that the US no longer has the strategic, you know, the, the technological and capability advantage over China that it, it had until very recently. China has come on leaps and bounds. Uh, you don't know how much, of course, is propaganda, but if you believe them, they've got this uh, Dongfeng 21 missile, which is apparently able to shoot, you know, an accuracy of 20 metres at a range of more than 2,000 kilometres it can hit a target 20 metres wide and it can follow a moving target. You go, well, this changes 
that if, if this is as it looks on the box, that's the whole of the US aircraft carrier fleet gone, you would have thought, in about a day. So it, it is worrying reading. It is the worst case scenario, but it just shows we've got to be prepared, really prepared. Does he concede that there is a best case scenario, though? I mean, there, there are factors internally to China that, that would give us sort of reason for uh, limited optimism. One of them is, of course, the one uh, the one child policy that was mm. that was in place mm. for thirty years or so. I mean, that's created a generation of of essentially sort of selfish uh, single children who whose parents don't want them to go to war and who are kind of psychologically ill prepared to uh, to fight in a war anyway. Also, I mean, China might be technological, but I, I believe that it has trouble finding smart enough people to operate the technology it's got on the battlefront. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it does. And look, yes, you're right. I mean, the, the, on the other side, China has problems. It's got economic uh, issues that are unresolved. You know, there could well be a recession in China if things progress as they are, uh, which has consequences for us, of course. So there's that. There's also the fact that I think China probably didn't bank on the fact that uh, the more aggressive they get, the more posturing they do, then the more uh, it draws other countries together. So there's a pretty solid alliance building of just about every country around China except North Korea and Russia, and every country in the world probably except those two countries plus Iran maybe, and Cuba and a few others. But you know, basically the world has come together behind this. It's drawn countries like Japan, India, Australia, even closer together, you now get the AUKUS agreement, of course, uh, which uh, wouldn't have happened without the threat of China. So the, the, there are counter, countervailing facts, but uh, the underlying truth is there that China has ambitions to take Taiwan, and uh, which it considers its own, and that won't be the end of it. You know, we can see what's been going on. I mean, I said to Jim Fred, I mean, you know, I was a correspondent, foreign correspondent in Hong Kong, you know, best part, 25, 30 years ago, and I was writing stories then about China building artificial islands near the Spratleys. And I was writing then about this massive blue water navy they were building. We, we have been asleep at the wheel, I think. Well, speaking of that, do you think the coalition were asleep at the wheel, especially? Look, I, I think I, I wouldn't be hard on the coalition in that they did at least reverse you know, the, the reduction in spending that was happening in defence under Labor and push it to 2% and just actually a little bit above 2% of GDP. So they were doing that. I, I think they, they obviously, um, let's put no finer point on it, did stuff around a bit with the, with the submarines. We've got a good option now, but of course every, you know, delays count on this. Uh, and they, they, you know, probably you might say, well, they should be moving ahead much more quickly with building mi missile manufacturing capabilities in Australia and all the other things we were going to do. But Jim's point is, well, look, we've got to be like the Israel of the region. Israel has come to uh, realise at some point that they had to be totally self-reliant uh, and they don't need the same capabilities as the United States. They just need enough to defend themselves and they've pretty much done that. We need to do that, but the cost, Six to eight percent of GDP, Jim says, which is about three to four times what we're spending now. Well, speaking of war, uh, the war in Ukraine's just turned six months old. Most people thought it would probably be over in in two weeks with Russia just rolling into the country. Still going now. Which way do you think is going to go, Nick? I think it's a 
it's a terrible situation because we can't actually see the end point, can we? I mean, I think most people would say the idea of a total victory for Ukraine isn't going to happen. I mean, you can't dislodge Russia completely. Uh, and the reverse is true. I mean, obviously, Russia is not is, is just given up any ambitions it had of occupying the whole country. So the question is, where, do the, where does the truce lie? Where do they get to a point where they can actually negotiate an agreement? And it's very difficult on both sides, I would have thought, uh, because, you know, for President Zelensky, he won't want to give any ground. And why should he? I mean, this was a hostile action by, by a neighbouring country. And Putin, of course, has his own issues. He's got his reputation. He's, he's got a lot. He'd lose a lot of face he can lose. Uh, I mean, we, if reports are right, there have been a lot of Russians killed, a lot of Russian lives lost in this. Um, so I, I, I honestly fear, Fred, this is one of those things that's just going to rumble along for years and, and it'll get forgotten like it won't. We won't see it reported in our newspapers because we'll all be bored and have moved on. But, you know, for years and years, this thing is going to just rumble on. Oh, it'll be, become like the Vietnam War again. It'll just yeah. appear on the news every couple of weeks and no one will really care. Let's talk about Canberra. Peter Dutton says the job summit will be a return to the industrial warfare of the 70s. He's pretty much right, don't you think? Yeah. I make this point on tomorrow's program, Fred, that uh, Tony Burke, who is the minister in charge of employment and trade unions and everything, he's got three things he wants to do to increase wages. All of them involve regulation, right? The first, the first one is to get the Fair Work Commission in to start organising employers so that they pay better wages. The second is to empower the unions and, uh, and, and, and so on and so on. And the, so every stay, step of the way, he says the way to get higher wages is to just knock employers and get more for the workers. Because Tony Burke is, of course, uh, you know, is a lifelong career politician and union staffer. That's the way he thinks. Lifelong Marxist, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the point. <laughs> but if you're if you're running a business, this is just total totally nuts, right? Yeah. You, you pay what you can pay, and in this job market, you pay as much as you can because there's a shortage of workers. The idea that the government can come along and simply one way and another tell you to pay your workers more. Well, there's only one result from that, is that you employ fewer people. Well, as I said in my editorial earlier, I, I think the, the, the conclusions of this job summit were, were, were resolved months ago, and the job summit is just a way of presenting them softly to the electorate. Let's just talk about Dutton for a second, because he seems to be settling into the role of opposition, pretty well, opposition leader pretty well. But he doesn't have that affinity with ordinary people that Albo as, is an absolute master of, you've got to say. And I think this is a shame because I'd argue that Dutton in real life is probably more a relatable bloke than Albo is. And like, I, you know, I don't like politicians who adopt artificial personas or, you know, try too hard to pretend they're one of the people. But do you think Dutton needs to loosen up a bit? Yeah, I think he does. And, and look, this is a, a well-known phenomenon. You and I have seen this over the years. Politicians that have been really wonderful people face-to-face, -face, you know, you sit down with them. And I'd include people like Julia Gillard in that category, for instance. You know, charming and, and, and delightful to engage with on that level, but unable to portray that when it comes to the media and in public appearances. I think Peter Dutton has some work to do on, on that, definitely. Uh, I'll put another uh, view to you, though, Fred. I mean, they, he doesn't actually need to be out and about right now. I think the best thing that they could do, particularly after a, a very decisive defeat like they had, is to 
is to stand back, let Labour be Labour, and then go in once Labour start making mistakes. And that, of course, is happening thick and fast already and only increase, I'm sure. And he has time to establish himself in the public mind. I mean, I think a lot of people really don't know him. They would like to know more about him. Uh, let a bit of a lull happen, let Labour come and show their wares, and then he's got an opportunity to come up and show himself as the, the alternative. So I, I don't have any insights into this, what his office are doing, uh, but look, he's missed a 17% at the moment. Does anybody worry about this in the opposition? No, absolutely not, because it's very early days, and if you missed a 17%, the only way is up, isn't it? <laughs> Spoken like a shrewd strategist, Nick. Now, very quickly before you go, Anthony Fauci has resigned, has announced he will resign, uh, you know, the US uh, Chief Health Officer. One quick question. What is he likely to become first, a recipient of the Nobel Prize for Medicine or Secretary General of the United Nations? It's got to be the rise and rise of Fauci, right? This man has just just risen from being a public, mere sort of public official to, to this great figure who gets interviewed and profiled. It has to be something. But my, my final message to him, and I must admit I pinched this from Ben Shapiro, see you later, don't, don't let the door hit you on the bum <laughs> on the way out. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you in court perhaps. <laughs> anyway, thanks, thanks Nick Cater for your time. Good on you, Fred, love your show, thanks. Thanks, mate. Bye. That's Nick Cater, who's Nick Cater's battleground can be seen every Friday night at 8pm on ADH-TV. Now, before I go, almost two years after Donald Trump was defeated in the 2020 presidential election, the condition known as Trump derangement syndrome simply refuses to go away. It was always going to be a permanent mental affliction for his political enemies in the Democratic Party and their proxies in the FBI, CIA, IRS, CDC and other government agencies, but no matter how good his presidency looks in hindsight, and like a good wine it does improve with age, or how utterly appalling and corrupt the succeeding administration increasingly becomes, there's no cor correction in Trump's image among his ordinary detractors. You'd think by now there would have been a widespread acknowledgement that despite his gaucheness, Trump at least got things done. Or that all the things that the government has done to him since, such as the FBI's raid on his home this week, were ham-fisted and political. What causes Trump derangement syndrome is a misguided need to be dazzled by politicians. In this secular age, an unhealthy majority of people seek salvation and virtue from their political leaders. Results run a distant, distant second to the moral satisfaction they get from a leader who spouts the approved platitudes. Trump derangement syndrome doesn't discriminate. Even supposedly smart people are vulnerable to it. American neuroscientist, philosopher, author and podcaster Sam Harris revealed he suffers from the condition this week by saying that the cover-up of the scurrilous content of Hunter Biden's laptop during the 2020 election campaign was justified because it helped remove Trump from office. What effect this has on Harris's long-term career remains to be seen. But for people who don't suffer from the syndrome, watching other people's heads explode every time Trump becomes a topic in the news is almost as entertaining as his much admired but now canceled Twitter account. 
Well, that's it from me tonight. It was great to have your company this week, and I'll see you again on Monday right here on ADH TV. Good night.